I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On this episode of the Executives Exchange, we are excited to share Exec Club's 2023 International Executive of the Year, Mark Benioff. Mark is founder and CEO of Salesforce, Forbes Magazine's Innovator of the Decade, and an advocate for companies giving back to their communities. Hear how Mark has propelled Salesforce to its global success through a commitment to values, his thoughts on the future of AI, and more. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience on October 11th, 2023. Welcome to Chicago. Good, thank you for having me. Have you done anything fun while you're here? Yes, I uh, opened my uh, new tower last night, which was awesome. So, yeah, the new tower is amazing, and uh, you're all invited up. It's awesome. And uh, for nonprofits, you know, we offer it for free at night. Really? On our Ohana floor. We do that in all of our towers worldwide. And we help raise money and support them and provide them. The view here is beautiful out this window, but mine is much better. I'm sure it is, yes. We have the expressway. And uh, it's incredible to be up there. You really get yeah. a vision for Chicago. And the top two floors are totally open. And the top, the second floor also has a uh, catering kitchen on it. So we did a big event for our customers last night and did a dinner with uh, 30 executives. And Sting came and performed, which was Shut awesome. Off. Oh, my God. You didn't get the invite. No. Margaret, you talked to Kendall. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's amazing up there. So yeah. I recommend everyone to go up and enjoy it and use the space uh, to make Chicago a better city. We will, for sure. Thank you. Um, so we're going to ask a few questions. People get to know Mark a little bit. Uh, ever since you were a teenager, you've had an entrepreneurial spirit. Tell us about your early days with video games and how that led to the founding of Salesforce. Well, before I start, I just want to acknowledge uh, these terrible events that we've uh, seen this week and how horrible it is. Uh, I know all of us are witnessing things that we never thought we would have to witness. And uh, I know this morning in my own prayers, uh, which I start every morning, I was praying for peace because I've just never seen anything quite like we're all going through. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that before I started because I think it's on my mind and everyone's mind. Um, you're, you are right that um, uh, 40, 50, 60, I don't know how many years ago it is. Who's uh, counting? I just had my 59th birthday. So I, uh, when I was 14, I started my own software company. And I started it with a friend of mine in San Francisco. And uh, our parents were wondering what we were doing. And they were very worried about us. Uh, and he's still actually my partner uh, at Salesforce and as one of our key uh, technology leaders. And um, uh, we wrote a bunch of software in a high school and then in college. Uh, and I just always loved the software industry. And uh, after I graduated college, I went to work for Oracle for 13 years, which was amazing. Had a lot of great trips here to Chicago. We did a lot of work here. And then in 1999, March 8th of 99, now almost 25 years ago, we started Salesforce. And it's become an amazing uh, company, 70,000 employees, third largest enterprise uh, software company in the world. And um, I would say that the thing that's exciting about uh, Salesforce is we have had a big impact on a lot of our local 
communities like here in Chicago where we have 2,400 employees. We have our new tower. Um, we've been able to give back $12 million in uh, gifts directly to local schools and other nonprofits and NGOs here in town. And I, you know, have really enjoyed that part of it. And I think that the reason why is when we started the company 25 years ago, we did put 1% of our equity, our profit, and our time into a nonprofit or an NGO. It was very easy at the time because we had no equity, profit, or <laughs> time. We didn't have anything. But that idea that we do this 111 model that we call Pledge 1%, that has turned into uh, the ability to give back three quarters of a billion dollars, seven million hours of volunteerism globally. We run 50,000 nonprofits and NGOs for free on our service, so we'd love to support love you to also. And I think that um, uh, it's been amazing. Today we're the, even the second largest software company in Japan, just behind Microsoft, we just passed Oracle. So that has been an incredible thing for our company. And uh, when we look at the great customers that we have, even right here in Chicago or all over the world, um, they, they really um, have propelled us uh, at a rate that we could never have uh, uh, expected. And it, it's great to come back to Chicago to kind of to see the impact. Yeah, we're glad you're here. So you were an entrepreneur. You went into a more traditional um, corporate job for a while. Was it always the plan to start your own company? Did something happen partway through? You know, I always was very entrepreneurial right from the beginning, number one. You know, I started this company, Liberty Software, when I was in high school. I went to uh, USC in Los Angeles. We have a great football team, if you're not aware. <laughs> and also, um, the thing about um, uh, when I went to USC, I really went there for two reasons. One, my mom went there. Two was because they had a great entrepreneur program, and I really benefited from that. And then coming out, my entrepreneur professors were quite brutal with me, and they were like, you are not ready to go start your own company. You have to go learn how this, 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 this. And then one of them introduced me to Oracle and said, this is where you should go work. And um, I had never heard of it before. It was a $50 million company. It just had gone public. Uh, it was in Belmont, California. It was very close to my home, which was a shock. So it was like a two-minute drive from my house. So I. Uh, ended up going to work there, had a great experience for 13 years. My boss, Larry Ellison, who's the CEO, still is my mentor, still calls me almost every day or texts me, uh, has been an incredible person yeah. uh, in my life, and uh, it was a great experience. And then in 99, it was just clear to me that I was ready yeah. to leave, and I was 34 years old, and I wanted to go do something on my own. I, I really wanted to do three things. One was you know, this new philanthropic model that we just said, that was definitely a gap at Oracle that I really felt I wasn't giving back at scale. And I really wanted to be able to give back at scale. That was incredibly important to me. Two was I could see a new technology model was emerging that we didn't have the word the cloud quite yet. So, but I could see that there was gonna be this incredible new opportunity based on the internet. And three is a different business model for software, which today we can call subscription. So that idea of a different philanthropic model, business model, and technical model, that was enough for me to say these are three things we can really hang our hat on. And today, you know, Salesforce is, uh, you know, kind of inching up this year to do more than 35 billion in revenue, 70,000 
uh, employees worldwide and has more than a $200 billion market cap. So that those are things that we could have never really expected. Yeah. We were really just trying to see, can we accomplish these three things? And it turned into something much bigger yeah. than we expected. That's remarkable. So I want to talk about AI a little bit, because Salesforce is an AI company now as well. So first- Every company is now an AI company. I know. So two things. I would love your vision for the AI revolution, just your perspective and point of view on AI and where it's going. And then second, how it's transforming Salesforce. Well, we're, we're in something that in our lifetimes we'll see some remarkable technology that will be w beyond what we've ever seen. And my partner in my high school software company said to me something that I've been repeating, which is he said, this is not only the most remarkable technology of our lifetime, but of any lifetime. And we're going to all witness what that is. Today we see it a little bit. Maybe we're using some of these internet services and we're kind of in the first phase of it. So. I would say that, you know, for sure about a decade ago, I was very worried that AI was really happening and Salesforce needed to be even more aggressive in AI. And I bought about a dozen AI companies. And um, Salesforce has done about 60 acquisitions and a significant percentage of those were AI companies at that moment. And we built this incredible team and we built a product called Einstein, which is our AI platform. And this week, Einstein will do about a trillion transactions for our customers, AI transactions. And those are mostly what we call predictive transactions. That means it's kind of like figuring out, oh, I'm working with, like if you go on a commerce site, uh, like for example, I bought this suit at Berluti. If you go to Berluti, they run Salesforce, and if you go to their commerce site, it knows that you're a Salesforce user, it knows who you are, that I bought this suit, and because I bought this suit, I probably am gonna like this suit. And so that's a predictive transaction. The second idea of AI, which is now what we're all witnessing, well, how many of you have used uh, ChatGPT or Bard from Google? So about half. And um, I would say that, uh, by the way, it was interesting, I was at a conference in Utah on Monday and I asked the question um, and it was only about a third. So like in San Francisco, if I ask that, like every, every hand is up, like all, both hands. Um, but I would say that this idea that we're in the first quarter of this, which has been about predictive, now we're in the second quarter, which is generative. And that is like the big accelerator where everybody was kind of like, oh, I've used ChatGPT or I've used this technology and it did something kind of, it seemed very magical. and. It kind of was able to provide what seemed like intelligence. So that idea that um, we've now moved from predictive to also generative AI is extremely powerful. They're connected in that the deep learning models that were really built 10, 15 years ago have really been stretched open and much larger data sets were able to be, um, I would say, consumed by these kind of large, large hyperscaler infrastructures and then we saw that we could add in prompt engineering and these idea that we're doing these prompts, like writing these questions, all of a sudden those three things started to give us this pseudo intelligence. This is still the beginning, obviously. They're not very accurate. They can be very toxic. Um, they can provide uh, information that is not very uh, appealing. I also own Time Magazine and we have a 100 year operating history. Those companies all consumed all of our data without asking us and are just using that data as part of their model. I would say, and every other media thing on the internet as well. 
So that idea that generative is out there and kind of working though, that's very interesting. And the productivity opportunities for our customers, like I just had uh, breakfast with one of our large insurance customers who's got hundreds of thousands of users you know, on Salesforce, we're gonna be able to make them a lot more productive, save them a lot of money, help them be more efficient using generative as well as predictive. And then we're about to shift into the third inning, which will be really coming in, I would say, uh, in the next you know, year to you know, two years, which is more agents, software that's kind of running out there by itself, autonomous software. I just invested in a company called Moonhub, and it's a very interesting little company started by the former, the wife of the former head of research at Salesforce, and she's done a miraculous thing. She's built a piece of software, an agent, using these next generation models that can kind of figure out where all of the artificial intelligence experts are in an area. And if you're a company and you're trying to recruit AI engineers, like a lot of people are in my industry, it can go out and start emailing them and talking to them and saying, hey, are you interested in a job in Salesforce? Hey, are you interested in this? Are you interested in that? Would you like, you know, increase your salary? Whatever it would say. And then it says yes. And then when they said yes, it says, oh, send me your resume, this and the other thing. Her business model is if she closes that engineer, she gets a third of the first year's salary, which is a very interesting business model. And that person that the software is recruiting doesn't even realize that they're working with an agent, uh -huh. you know, that is a software agent. So that idea that instead of having a thousand recruiters all looking for the top AI experts in the world, right. that there's a piece of software out there doing that, wow, that's like very powerful. And I think that for a lot of our customers, I think that you know we could see something like that that would be very powerful for them to do business development or even more advanced customer service or sales. This kind of next level of of uh, agents and autonomy is coming. And the fourth quarter of that world is AGI. And the idea of AGI is that's artificial general intelligence. That's where the software's starting to think much more on its own. It's multi-sensory. It's able to pick up data from lots of different things, not just the current like multimodal systems we have today. Multimodal means text, audio, video, like if you're using BART or ChatGPT, you can feed it pictures or text, these kind of things. Multi-sensory systems will be able to pick up information from lots of things like the camera on the ceiling or this camera and the microphone and all these things. And then based on that is able to have some, you know, observation about what's going on or give it one little picture of information like this and it fills in the rest of the picture because it's that smart. Those are not the systems of today. The systems of today can't do that kind yeah. of complexity. They are large language models, not large world models, which means large language models are, I understand this word, that word, this word, because I read 100 Years of Time magazine, therefore the next word is this. Right. That's all that's happening on a chat GPT on these next generation of models. Because I see the world here, I know the rest of the world looks like that that is a whole different opportunity. Yeah, and this has big workforce implications. So what should all the leaders here be thinking about in regards to that? I think paying attention. I don't think we fully understand all of the consequences. We've all watched the movies. You know, <laughs> the person who was right, wrote part of Minority Report 
and wrote uh, War Games, you know, is our chief futurist. He works for Kendall Collins, my chief of staff. And when we look at those movies, or her, or, you know, Space Odyssey, or other things, we can see pictures of what the future could potentially look like, but ultimately, the future is going to be shaped a lot by the actions that we take over the next, uh, you know, uh, 5, 10, 20 years, and so I think we all have to participate in that, and it's going to be very important that we do. Yeah. I wonder if there's anything you're watching or paying attention to that the rest of us aren't, or that you think we should be? Well, I think that that is the big surprise. You know, I think a year ago, if you had said, oh, there's going to be this huge breakthrough in generative AI, even the companies that kind of feign that they understand where it was, they don't. Yeah. And you look back at their board decks or whatever, you're not going to see any mention of that. Yeah. And um, a good example of that is Microsoft. They had to release one of their board decks um, for their act because they're being sued by the U.S. government because they're, again, trying to do this maneuver with Activision like they've done with all these other companies to do all this kind of crazy stuff. And what you basically see is in their board deck, it doesn't even talk about generative AI, and this is the board deck from April 21, so or 22. So April 22, they didn't have it. Then the big breakthroughs came from OpenAI, and they came in with a big investment motion, and that became part of their, you know, um, operating motion at the end, uh, and now we can see, oh yeah, the OpenAI has done some miraculous thing, as well as a number of other companies yeah, as well. For sure. Um, I'd love to talk about your leadership style a little bit. So you've delivered incredible innovation to your customers for over 25 years. I know it hasn't always been easy, especially these last couple of years have been very challenging for many CEOs. So if you can share with everyone uh, both your general approach to leadership, but also how you lead through challenging times. Well, I think that, uh, you know, we've definitely, the world is constantly changing, and I mean, that's the fun part about being a leader, is that you're constantly being given opportunities to grow and to learn new things. And I think that's why it's so important that we kind of maintain, you know, uh, the Japanese word shoshin. As I mentioned, Salesforce is the second largest software company in Japan, and I really enjoyed all my time in the Japanese market. And you know, the Japanese philosophies are very different than what we're experiencing here in Chicago. Uh, but I would say that one word and one idea that they have that we can really learn from is Shoshin. And Shoshin means the beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is very simple, that in the beginner's mind you have every possibility, but in the expert's mind you have few. And so I think that as the world is changing and as things are evolving, it's a natural human tendency, especially as we're getting older, to think the world is going to be exactly as it always was or as it is right now. And then the ability to kind of break out and look at multiple scenarios of what the world could be, that's just not in human nature. So this idea to regain your beginner's mind, to really take time to try to let go of all of the things that have happened in the past so that you can kind of be able to have a vision for the future, that is something that I've really benefited from learning from you know, my trips to Japan. And that idea applied to business means that in the tech industry, okay, a year ago, you know, like when I was here, I had a great dinner, a year, a year, 18 months ago or 24 months ago, I can't remember what it was, at Esma Restaurant. And it was awesome, we had Dave Matthews actually perform, it was great. He was awesome. We had a lot of amazing people, great local CEOs, and also some global CEOs came and other business leaders. And if you look at that marking 
as a bookmark even of where we were or a bookend. And then you look at the dinner last night, the whole world has changed in right. my industry. Everything has changed. Not just, not even the pandemic. That dinner kind of was at the end of the pandemic even. Now we're like at another level. So it could be the pandemic, it could be AI, it could be a lot of different things. I think the number one thing is to realize, hey, you just have to be aware that things are really changing and, and going forward. And I definitely learned, well, I guess the Japanese are learning a lot about Chicago right now because Rahm Emanuel is our new ambassador. Yes. <laughs> so they're having to learn a lot about Chicago. I saw him when I was in Tokyo last. And so we're gave, we gave, they gave us uh, Shoshin and we gave them Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> is that a fair trade? Yeah, It's a fair trade. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shore microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shore lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. I mean, a little off topic, but this inability to envision the future, I mean, that's what people are struggling with, with even planning for their own aging. I mean, that's what they realize. We can't picture ourselves old, right? And we just think we're going to be the same people for the rest of our lives, too. And if you can get people to even think about, what am I going to be like in 20 years, 30 years? What am I going to want out of my life? And it's so difficult. How do you help yourself vision the future or help your team vision the future? Because it's hard. Well, I think that your life changes, but your necessarily your values don't have to change. So I think that it's very important as we kind of think about our vision, maybe that Shoshin, what do I really want? What am I trying to achieve? What is my goal? What is my outcome? What is my dream? What is my life? Like, where am I going? That's one idea. I think the second idea is what are my values? What is important to me? What are my principles? What are my priorities? You know, for me, when I, what, you know, what level do I, th like, like at Salesforce, our core values are trust and customer success and innovation and equality and sustainability. And they've mostly been those values for 25 years. And I think that even if I look at my own values, that what I can say is, yes, my life is changing. Maybe, you know, the mayors are changing, the presidents are changing, the world is changing, but are my values changing? And what are my values? What is really important to me? In priority, like what is the most important thing to me? How important is trust? How important is love? How important is health? How important is happiness in my family, my business success, my philanthropic success, my ability to give back? What is the prioritization of those? How do I prioritize that? So I think that when you look at your life, you have to look at your core values. And that's true for a business and an organization, that's true for an individual because organizations are just collections of individuals, so you're just aggregating values. So that idea of what, is, what are your values? Like, let's really look at that. Like, what do you really want, okay? And what is really important to you? And I think that is important. So I think while it is, why it is hard to visualize, you know, what are you gonna look like, you know, at this age, at that age, or the other age, I think it's much easier to say, what are my values at those ages? Mm -hmm. Who am I? What kind of a person am I? What core values? How much have I given back? You know, what is my family like? What is my, what is my uh, work? What is my uh, contribution? Right. You know, these things, what level of trust do I have? What is, 
what level of spirituality or uh, uh, have I been able to maintain? Yeah. I think these things we can pay more attention to. So how does Salesforce operationalize its values across your operations, businesses, your culture? Yeah, well, we put all of that together in how we operate and lead the company on a regular basis. So at the beginning of every fiscal year, I'm coming, coming up into that crest pretty soon, but our fiscal year will start February 1. And starting pretty soon, call it in somewhere in late November, December, I will lay out five questions in front of me on a blank piece of paper. And this is what I do exactly that moment every year, actually since 1998, before we started the company, where I really say to five, I try to answer five questions. Number one is, yes, what do I really want? Yeah. Like, that's a hard question. And for this year, though, for Salesforce, what is our vision? What are we trying to achieve? Two is, what are our values? The three, third thing is, how am I operationalizing those values? So for a CEO or for a business manager, we sometimes rush into the operationalization of the values too quickly. That is, oh, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to do this, I need to do the other thing. Instead, what I like to do is say, my number one most important value that I have that I'm focused on for this year is trust. How am I going to achieve trust? Three things. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. How am I doing into the technology and in the infrastructure and in the culture? How am I creating trust? Let's start there. How am I creating customer success? How am I creating innovation? Um, how am I creating equality? How am I creating sustainability? And then look at that against all of that together and then my operating budget and all of that comes right out of the operationalization of my core values. Then the same thing happens when I get to the next thing, which is my fourth question, which is, what is preventing me from achieving success, my vision? And that, also I go to my core values. What is preventing me from achieving trust? What is it preventing me from achieving customer success or innovation or equality or sustainability? Or, like really look at it. And the fifth is, comes out of, again, Japan, Deming, you know, as American went over after World War II and kind of said, hey, this is how we're going to achieve metrics for success. Really measuring success was the key to success and achieving quality, which the Japanese really showed us, especially as we got into the, call it the 60s, 70s, 80s, they fed it back to us. That idea that Deming really came and said, let's look at the metrics. How we know that we have trust. Like, what's the metric, the KPI, the number, the numerical? How would we know that we have customer success or innovation? And then you look at that, those five things together as a matrix, it gives you a pretty good comprehensive picture of what you're trying to achieve for that year or that moment. By the way, I use that on my life as well. I was going to ask you that. So those are like, those five questions apply across the board. How, how much overlap is there? For me, I would say that that model has worked very well that gives me, can quickly give me a snapshot of what I'm trying to do yeah. and the company. And then I try to train my executives to use it. And here's a funny thing. Are you ready for this? ChatGPT knows how to build the V2 mom. It's crazy. <laughs> so if you go to chat.openai.com, I, I, all you do is just write down a whole bunch of stuff about your life. You don't even have to do the questions or any of that and then say, write this as a V2 mom, and it figures out, based on what you wrote, 
what you want, what's important to you. I'm like, that is pretty cool because it's a language model and because you're basically operating from language, it can do that really well. Yeah. And um, when I saw it do that, I was very impressed. But the cool thing was is I have a lot of executives or employees come to me and say, well, I don't know how to write a V2 mom. I don't know, this is too complicated. I don't know what you're talking about. And now I just say to them, oh, no, worry about it. Chat GPT, they'll figure it out for you. <laughs> just write down in long form everything you want to get done this year, stream of consciousness, and just give it to it. And then it says, oh, no, this is your vision for this year. These are the values that you're operating by. Amazing. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. So we are definitely in a new world. And as an example of that, the technology to do that a year ago did not exist. Right. And now it does. So what does that really mean? It means these things are moving very quickly. Yeah. You've already alluded to it, but it, it would be good to spend just another minute or two on it because it's so cool. Your one 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 model, how you developed it, what it is, and what people could be taking away from that. Well, I think giving back is by far more fun for me even than making money or being successful is the ability to kind of give back. We had the University of Chicago Medical Center at the dinner uh, last night and really enjoyed hearing from them and their CEO and their chancellor and so forth because I enjoy working with these medical centers. And I mean, my family has been able to give back a billion dollars to our local community in San Francisco. We built two children's hospitals. We've done an ocean laboratory at UC Santa Barbara as well and a number of other programs, mostly focused on local philanthropy. And I would say that for me, that's by far the most fun thing. Um, building Salesforce is fun or having this tower here in San Francisco or in Tokyo or yeah. uh, New York or whatever, London is fun, but it's not as fun as kind of going, oh, this children's hospital, that is happening because I'm able to do what I'm doing. And so that a lot of that comes from my you know, vision of 25 years ago, I said, that is actually what I'm going to do. And for Salesforce, now put me aside and now just say Salesforce. Salesforce is the largest funder of our local public schools in San Francisco and Oakland, more than $150 million in gifts. Salesforce is our largest corporate philanthropist for our children's hospital, more than $100 million in gifts. And I would say that that is very proud moment for me, you know, that the company is able to give back at scale, not just me, right. to because, because of how it's architected, that there is a Salesforce foundation with its own board of directors, its own legal structure, that is able to make those profound things. And we just had our Dreamforce conference two weeks ago. We had 40,000 people to San Francisco, and um, we have a concert with that called Dreamfest that we did. And that concert has you know, generated a massive amount of money for the, for the University of California, San Francisco. And that's our public hospital. These are our public schools, our public parks. These are the places that I like to really see are being impacted, because otherwise, there's nobody kind of looking out for them. And I like to walk down the street, knock on the door of my public school, talk to the principal and say, hey, what is wrong here? What do you need? I need a new playground. I need capital for fix this building issue. I have this problem. And we have a lot of resources at Salesforce. We have lots of employees in San Francisco who, and we're here in Chicago, we've done the same thing here. And, you know, they're, 
it's their vested interest to make those public schools work because their kids are in those schools, just right. like my employees here, which is why we've done local philanthropy here You know, with the schools. That's what I like to do. That's what makes what I have found fulfillment in business because I think a lot of my friends all of a sudden, they're like, oh, I'm not that interested in being CEO anymore. I'm not really interested in being like, I think that there's like a uh, this gap in their fulfillment because they're not don't see how they can actually give back or how they're making things better and then they'd rather just go off and do something else because they're, you know, being the CEO of this company or that company isn't as great and um, because they're not able to get that link back into their, into, their, into their psyche. I think this fixes a lot of that and I think that it can really help others and 17,000 organizations have already signed on to be one, one, one companies with, you know, along with us, and in, I was in Utah on Monday night, and Doug Burgum, who is running for governor, and uh, I think it's North Dakota from Fargo, and he, you know, um, was the chairman of a company called Atlassian in Australia that's gone public, that's worth tens of billions of dollars, and when they started the company, Scott, who's the CEO, and Doug, who's the chairman, they adopted our 111 model, and that was exciting to me, and so... That was a powerful, a powerful uh, thought that we can also influence others through that evangelism or that advocacy. I think there's a general sentiment that most of the successful tech CEOs are not like you and they're not as philanthropic and there's some concern that uh, what's going to happen. Do you see it that way? Well, I mean, I probably like everyone in this room. There's people in this room who are very generous and people in this room who are not. So... Um, <laughs> You know, that's life, you know. Some people feel it and some people don't. You know, one of the, you know, we're in America and you can do whatever you want, basically. Just try not to hurt anybody. So that's pretty powerful. And so if you're starting a company, you can put whatever values you want in it right. and you can also um, choose a philanthropic strategy if you want to do that. Yeah. And that's a great thing. So when we come to business, uh, we can choose the kind of business we want. At Salesforce, we believe that business is the greatest platform for change. So that idea that business is the greatest platform for change, well, that's a scalable idea. If small businesses, medium businesses, large businesses can all adopt that. You don't have to be a big business to do this. You can be a small business and you can adopt your local public school. Yeah. Why more don't do it? I have no idea, really. I think maybe because they get this in their head in, in, you know, getting their a business degree, Milton Friedman, the business of business is business, and that's it. But for us, the business of business is changing the world, that that is a different kind of perspective. But you can adopt any philosophy you want. I'm not going to judge you. You just do what you want to do, whatever's going to make you happiest. Yeah. Um, I just want to spend a couple minutes on Chicago before we wrap. Uh, thank you for your investment here. The tower is gorgeous. We're looking forward to having an event there. Can we also get Sting to come to our event? Sure, absolutely. Okay. I'll give yeah. you his number. Okay, thank you. Um, but we love he to hear- He was nice to come last night because, yeah, he's, yeah, it was awesome. So you're going to have to come to the next one. Um, yeah. Do you choose the musicians that you like? I do, because why not? Yeah, because you can. Uh, I know his wife. I've, you know, texted her and said, hey. Just text Trudy. I got, hey, what's up? Yep, and I said, hey, I'm opening this new tower in Chicago. Would really like Sting to play. 
And she goes, let me just see. And it just turned out like he played um, Arizona or something on Monday. And then tonight he was going to be like in San Francisco. And he's like, she's like, I think I can make this work. And then all of a sudden, I gave the information to Kendall and his team. And then a couple hours later, boom, it was done. And I'm like, this is going to be amazing. And it was really awesome. He was just incredible. Yeah. And he just did this whole thing where he not just played the song, but before he played the song, because we all know the songs, so we can all sing the songs, tell this whole story of how the song was conceptualized, you know, how he wrote the song, why he wrote the song, and that was a really great really neat. moment. So, yeah, it was really good. It was Who, A+. Plus. Who's on your uh, hit list that you haven't gotten yet? Who's on my hit list? No, actually, not too many. Musicians. I love music, and, uh, you know, we have, um, we just had Dreamforce, and at Dreamforce we had um, Foo Fighters play, and I like Dave Grohl, and, yes. you know, his incredible legacy coming out of Nirvana, and he's just an incredible musician, and also we had a little private dinner for the CEOs uh, who came to uh, Dreamforce, and we had Dave Matthews. Those are really two of my favorites right there. Um, Neil Young is one of my Actual, he was actually a neighbor of mine in Hawaii for many years, and he's absolutely one of my favorite people in the world and favorite musicians. And his music really speaks to my uh, soul. And also, we have Jewel play, and she's come here to Chicago and played, and she lives in Telluride, and she's flown in here a number of times for us, and she's just pretty magical. And I think that the commonality of all those people and others that I could tell you including Lars Ulrich of Metallica and Anthony Kredis of Chili Peppers. They're singer-songwriters. Singer-songwriters I resonate with because they are innovators, they're creators, they're entrepreneurs. Also, the people that I do invite and are on my mind are entrepreneurs. They, I connect with them on, an, on their entrepreneurial spirit, their ability to kind of see where they want to go and create it in music or in their band. It's pretty awesome. And I love that about these musicians. And yeah. so there are a whole group of these people. We just went through all of them. Uh, Brandy Carlisle's another amazing person. But someone who kind of writes their music and performs and also can just stand up and like, it was just Sting and a guitar last night. It wasn't a band. And so someone who can just stand up in a room and sing a song that they wrote, that is great. And I think it's a model for an entrepreneur, too, that every entrepreneur should be able to stand up in front of a room and talk about their business. Well, here, I'm being asked to do it. So, <laughs> you know, it's the same thing. Like, you have to be able to, like, present what it is that you are, what you are doing. Now, I just had, you know, breakfast with this large insurance company. It's local here, State Farm. You've probably heard of it. And... Yeah, we manage their, all their customer relations, their sales, their service, their marketing, their commerce, their analytics, their collaboration capability. It's all 100% Salesforce. And it's a very large, scaled, high-quality, successful implementation through tremendous sponsorship of their CIO, their CTO, their CEO, board members, and so forth. And I remember the first time I came to Chicago, and they were 100% IBM. Okay, and I'm like, oh, I don't see how we're ever going to change this, you know. But here we are. And to me, that's very meaningful. Like, it's meaningful work that they're a better organization, higher quality, more productive, 
higher customer success, that the independent agents that they work for, with are successful, and that our platform is able to achieve that for them. In that same level, maybe that's the music that we are creating. You know, We want to be able to have impact on our local communities. We want to inspire others. That's these musicians. When I hear those musicians play their music, I feel that same kind of vibe. And I really got that first time ever was Neil Young. So Neil Young and I just or ended up having so many conversations because he was literally my next door neighbor. It was crazy. Yeah. And I had not really heard that much Neil Young music before. Just it was a little bit out of sync with my whole, you know, generation. And then all of a sudden, because, you know, his really his best music was in the early 70s. Albums like Harvest and all of these amazing albums. And so getting to know his music and getting to know him and his philosophy. And then also that he was an entrepreneur working in other areas. He started this company called Pona, which is a music company. He did this Lionel Trains. Um, he did all kinds of different things that were amazing. And that's where I was like, wow. And he had a huge focus on giving back. He did this bridge school concerts. And I'm like, this is very remarkably similar to what entrepreneurs and CEOs that I have known for decades are doing yeah. in the innovation. And it's not a very big leap to say that these singer-songwriters are entrepreneurs like some of these tech entrepreneurs that I know. And they're innovators, and it's, it's very interesting. And so that's, the, that's how I make that connection. I'm getting all sorts of hand signals, which means that we yeah, need to We are going up. to Houston, too. <laughs> So we're, but anyway, we wanted to thank you so much for giving us the award, and we love Chicago, and we'll do anything to support you. And for you, those of you who are on nonprofits and NGO boards, and on and on and on, we have this fantastic tower, so you should be using it, you know, to make your organizations better. We've run ten, we've, we have raised tens of millions of dollars just alone in our San Francisco tower. So I hope that you use it and uh, make good use of those Ohana floors at the very top. It's really worth seeing. We will, for sure. All right. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Thank you so much, Margaret. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.